This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 19. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I am really excited about today's episode because I love reading short stories, especially short mysteries. I subscribe to both Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, and it's always fun for me when one of them show up on my Kindle. My guest today is Barb Goffman an award-winning author who focuses her writing on short stories, and she's landed the cover story for the year-end issue of Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, which is a huge coup for any author. Now, while I love reading short stories, I have a terrible time trying to write them. Why? Backstory. Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm addicted to writing backstory. As we'll learn in this episode, there is no place for backstory when you're writing short fiction. Imagine you're going out to lunch with a friend who is a big talker, mm-hmm. and you just want to get to the meat of the story of that, what happened with her husband. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to know how she got caught in traffic coming, to, coming to, to lunch. You just want her to skip all the traffic stuff and get to the heart of the matter. That's what a short story is. You're getting to the heart of the matter right away. In this interview, we're going to be talking about the mysterious world of the short story author. We'll be discussing things like story calls and where to find them. Adapting your stories to meet the specific requirements of anthologies. How rights work for different publishers of short stories. How much you can expect to be paid for a short story. And what you should pay attention to before deciding to submit a story to a publisher. In addition to her writing, Barb is also a highly regarded and much-in-demand editor. We spend the last quarter of the interview discussing the different types of edits. Things like developmental edits, line edits, copy edits, and even proofreading. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. I've been an Audible listener for years now, and one of my favorite things about my subscription is that if I've got my phone, I've got an audiobook that I can listen to. I listen while I'm driving, while I'm exercising, and even while I'm working around the house. In fact, when our son moved away from home, it took three coats of paint to get his old room to match the rest of our house, and I listened to an entire audiobook over the three afternoons it took me to do the painting, (laughs) and I actually enjoyed it. For listeners of the AuthorBiz podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a no-obligation 30-day trial of their service to give you a chance to try it out. You could sign up for your trial at www.audibletrial.com slash authorbiz and download your free audiobook from over 150,000 titles. I'll have a link to the offer in the show notes at the AuthorBiz website. My guest today is Barb Goffman. She's an award-winning author who writes mystery short stories. Barb won the McCavity Award for the Best Mystery Short of 2013 with her brilliantly titled The Lord is My Seamus. And her wonderful collection of short stories, Don't Get Mad, Get Even, won the Silver Falchon Award from Killer Nashville earlier this year for the Best Single Author Mystery Short Story Collection of 2013. 
And she's got a new short story, A Year Without Santa Claus, scheduled to appear in the next issue of Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. Barb, welcome to the Author Biz. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I understand that you not only have the new story coming out in Alfred Hitchcock, but you've had a couple other things that have just released as well. So let's talk about all three of those before we really get rolling here. Um, well, the first one that came out earlier this month came out in Chesapeake Crimes, Homicidal Holidays. And the story is called The Shadow Knows. Um, Chesapeake Crimes is a... Agatha, Anthony, Derringer, and McCavity award-winning <laughs> short story series. And this is the sixth volume that's coming out. We have a new volume every two years. And um, my story, The Shadow Knows, takes place on Groundhog's Day. All the stories in this year's, in, in this year's collection take place on different holidays throughout the year. Um, and my story is a, it's a comic caper story about a man who lives in northern Vermont, who is so tired of long winters, and their town has a town groundhog who predicts <laughs> the weather. But he believes that this groundhog actually controls the weather, that he has special powers. Okay. So that if he's ever going to get an early spring, he has to get rid of that groundhog. <laughs> so what's, okay. what's, what's the second story? The second story is called It's a Trap, and it's in a in an anthology called The Killer War Cranberry, A Fourth Meal of Mayhem. And this anthology is put out by Untreed Reads Publishing, and almost every year for the last few years they've put out an anthology of funny Thanksgiving crime stories because, of course, you know, Thanksgiving leads itself to humor and mayhem and murder. <laughs> and my story involves two sisters who have been estranged for about ten years after... The younger sister stole the older sister's husband. Ouch. And their mother just died. And on her deathbed, she said, you know, you've got, to, you, you, you've got to just, you know, let it go, Joni. Please, please make up with your sister. So she agrees to try. And then we have a story about two sisters who are trying, maybe, to get along at Thanksgiving. But things don't always go as planned. Okay, and that actually reminds me of a story that I read of yours in your anthology, your, your single author anthology, the one that won the award. Don't get mad, get even, and, and we'll get into that later. But uh, there's sort of a holiday sister in, or story involving sisters in that one too that was uh, kind of gruesome <laughs> and funny, really funny. Yep, my sister in real life, she, um, she, I actually saw her just a few days ago, and she said to me. Why do you keep writing stories about this if you try to kill each other? Should I be, like, you know, drawing some conclusions here? I can tell you no, but she doesn't believe me. And then to round out this trio of new stories that you've got coming out, we have A Year Without Santa Claus in Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Um, I'm very excited. This is going to be on the cover of the magazine. So oh, nice. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really nice. Um, and... Hmm, I'm blanking on this story. I'm sorry. Usually I have my computer on and I could just look at them. Well, it's because you write so many. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that I really want to get into here. And we'll, we'll, we'll swing into Don't Get Mad, Get Even, which I okay. just read over the last couple of days. And I love the stories, but my single favorite part was 
the little bit that you threw in at the end of each story that talked about your muse or, or where the idea came from and the process that you used to put the story together. That was really illuminating for me, and I, I really love that. Well, I have to thank my publisher for that. He was the one who asked me to do that. And I've heard from so many people about that that it never would have even occurred to me to do it. And now I will never not do it in the future. <laughs> when I first read it, I thought, is this just a continuation of the story? Because sometimes on a Kindle, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, the breaks aren't always ideal. But I started reading. It's like, oh, that's what this is. And then I read the next story, and there was another one. And I think it was the third or fourth story. And... In it, you talked about the idea for the story um, coming from a call for stories with the word medium in it. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I had never yeah. heard that phrase, a call for stories, before. Um, so it's, I think it's a completely different world, the world of the short story writer uh, from the world of the novelist. And there are all these terms that I'm unfamiliar with and, and things that I'm unfamiliar with. So I'm really hoping you can educate me and our listeners today on what some of these things actually are. Oh, sure. Um, uh, if you were writing a novel, you, you probably wouldn't find anywhere out there saying, you know, we want novels on, you know, with, with murder based on Thanksgiving, you, you just don't see that. People write the novels they want to write, and they submit them and try to get them published. But with short stories, if you're going the traditional publishing route, what you'll often see is a publisher put out a call for stories saying, um, just for instance, I read one this morning. Uh, they're looking for stories that are historical mysteries set at least several decades in the past. Uh, and then they have certain criteria about word length, and, you know, theme and, you know, deadline and how many stories they'll take and, what you know, what they'll pay. And, and how, I, how I did you find out about this? Where, I mean, where, do you, um, where do you see this? Is there some special top secret bulletin board or something that you go to? Or how, how, do, how do people find these? Once you get involved in the short mystery community, you, you'll see them all over the place. I mean, this particular call for stories I saw on the Short Mystery Fiction Society listserv, but it will show up in a number of other places over the next you know, few weeks, I'm sure. But anybody who's interested in writing short story mysteries, and even readers, we have just a lot of people who are readers. Um, it's, it's a it's a Yahoo group, and it's called Short Mystery Fiction Society, and anyone can join. And there's just a lot of information there. Okay, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, if assuming that I can find it, because I'm going to join it as well, because I I want to learn more about this. So you you read this this morning, and you thought what to yourself? I thought that I have a story that might work for that already written. It just needs a little tweaking. Um, so, yay. <laughs> <laughs> so tweaking to meet the word length or tweaking to meet the theme? What kind of tweaking are we talking um, about? I don't normally write historicals, but I have, a, I have a story that I wrote over a year ago that was a different st kind of story for me. It was a much slower-paced story, and although I never said when it was set it easily could be set in, like, 1920 or 1950. It, it just has a slower pace to it. Okay. And I, so I think if I just make some tweaks to it showing when it's set, um, that it could work for this anthology, and, and that's good because the story ended up being, I think it's around 6,000 words, and a lot of story calls go up to 5,000 words, so it's been hard to place it. 
story calls. So that's what we're talking about. The, the, the term is story calls. When you see something like this uh, requesting a certain type of story, that's a story call. Yeah, a story call or a call for stories. Um, there are probably a few other terms, but that's generally what it is. Do you, do you have a sense of how many people would reply to something like this, to a, this particular story call? Well, this publisher is pretty new. They've only put out one anthology beforehand. And, and I'm always a little nervous about working with new people, but I know the author who's behind this new small publishing company. Mm-hmm. And he has a good reputation. So, you know, how many people will respond again varies based on, you know, how big the publisher is and how successful they've been in the past and et cetera. For, for this one, I, I honestly can't guess how many people will respond. You know, it could be... 20. It could be 100. I doubt it would be more than that. But I guess it also depends on how widely he promotes it. Okay. Uh, let's, let's go back to the Alfred Hitchcock story. Um, and I, I have read the submission requirements for Alfred Hitchcock, and it's essentially the same for Alf, Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen. I get a sense that if you're selected for one of those magazines, you've beaten out a lot of people to, to get there, and especially if, if you're on the cover. Do you have any idea how many submissions they get a month or a year? I mean, I, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that this is the first story I've sold to them. I have submitted to Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock for years, and I've always gone back very nice letters of, we really like this, but it just doesn't work for us right now, or, you know, if, if we weren't so backed up with stories we already purchased, I would buy this, or you were so close, but no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they always followed up with, please submit more. So, okay. Um, so when I finally sold this story, I, I was just beyond thrilled. And, how and then long, when, when I got it, I'm sorry, go on. How long did it take from the point where you submitted it and, until you were notified that, that they had selected it? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, let me think. I submitted that story, if I remember correctly, about a year ago. Oh, man. And I heard in June. Okay, so, so you, you probably it, almost it, forget about it by the time they uh, they get back to you. I try not to think about it because for the for the anthologies that say our deadline, let's just say, is September first, and we'll let you know by September fifteenth if you're in or not. Mm-hmm. I spend the entire two week period thinking, is it yet? Is the fifteenth? Is the fifteenth yet? Am I going to hear? Am I going to hear? <laughs> but when you know that you're not going to hear for six to ten months, I try not to think about it because otherwise you'll go insane. <laughs> this is a this is a unique world you're describing. So you're you're creating product constantly. You're just you're writing stories, and you, you get you get these ideas. And if if people get your book, don't get mad, get even. They'll they'll see how you get some of these ideas, and it's it's really entertaining uh, the way that your muse just seems to speak to you with with some of these things. But uh, are, are you just constantly cranking out stories and then just waiting for opportunities to submit them? Or how does, how does that process work for you? Um, I wish I were writing more than I am. I, I, get, I'm, I get very focused, and I can basically do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in the middle of an editing project, I'm not writing. I might get a story idea, and I'll jot down notes for it. But I won't get to write it until I have a break. Um, so yeah, I mean, right now I'm, I'm, I'm copying a book for one author. And as soon as that's over, I might have a five day break period. And if I do, I'm going to write a story in there, but it depends on how quickly the next author sends her project in. And if you write a story, will you be writing a story for a specific call or will you just be writing something that's on your list of things that you want to write? 
usually I write for specific calls, and and that's just that's just how I I do it. I, I get sometimes invigorated by a story call. So, you know, if, if you send something out and say, like the first the first story that I had in the Killer War Cranberry series, they said they wanted funny Thanksgiving crime stories, and at that point they said they were going to be taking one story for each type of food. Hmm. So I thought, okay, they'll get a ton of turkey stories. And I'll have a better shot if I submit a story that's with an unusual Thanksgiving food. So I wrote a story about gravy. So I thought, so I sat there and I thought, okay, gravy's unusual. What can I do with gravy? And I thought, okay, well, gravy comes in a gravy boat and it's small. So what can you do with it? And I thought, well, maybe you could hide something in gravy. And and then the story went from there. So when I when I when there's a call for story, sometimes just what they ask for will suddenly make my brain start firing and I'll come up with ideas. And hopefully I have time to sit down and write that story at that point, but sometimes I end up just having to take notes, and it could be a year later before I have the time to sit down and write it. So you must write good notes if you could remember what you were thinking at the time. I usually write about a page of notes, and I mean, that's really how I write. I People ask, are you a plotter or are you a pantser, meaning do you write by the seat of your pants? And I'm a combination of the two. Um, When I write, I generally know who my main characters are, and I know where I'm starting, and I know where I'm going to end up. And I might know a few high points along the way, but I don't know the exact route. So, you know, with a page long of notes, that's more than enough for me to know, okay, on Monday night I'm stopping at this motel, and on Wednesday night I'm stopping at that motel, mm-hmm. and which, which road I'm going to take in the middle is up to me when I finally get down to write it. Okay. I've, I've got lots of questions about this, but let's go all the way back to the very beginning. At some point, you made a conscious decision, I'm going to write short stories. Why did you do that? Well, actually, when I started writing fiction, I started writing a novel. Mm-hmm. Back in the mid-90s, I was, well, I mean, I've always been a big reader, and I was reading a book by Barbara Parker, the late Barbara Parker. Oh, I loved, I loved her. I loved her, and I loved her books, and I was reading one of her books, and I just remember thinking all of a sudden, I could do this. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, I, I, I was in law school at the time, and I thought, okay, well, this summer when I have some time, I'll write a book. Uh-huh. And I kept putting that time period off of when that would happen. And several years later, I had, I had been thinking about this book, but I had never written it. And I finally realized, well, the reason I haven't written this book is because I don't know how to write a book. I, before I went to law school, I was a journalist, and I knew how to write newspaper articles, but I didn't know how to write a book. And I thought, well, okay, you know, just because you thought you might want to write a book, it doesn't mean you know how, and I'll just give that dream up. And literally a week later, I saw an ad for a introductory fiction mystery writing class that was being held at a place called the Writer's Center, which was about two miles from my house. And the class was on Saturday mornings. It was perfect timing for me. So I said, I'll take it. I'll take the class. And if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. But it did. And that was where I started to learn about writing. And I wrote half of that first novel, and then I got stuck. And then I wrote an entire second novel, and then I started writing short stories. Um, generally, the, short, the first short story I wrote, Murder at Sleuthfest, I wrote because Chesapeake Crimes 2 had a call for stories. I figured... You know, it, it was a local anthology. They probably wouldn't get that many submissions. So I thought maybe my chances were good of getting in. 
And I thought that would be a good way to try to break into the mystery field. And I really had no idea when I started writing that first short story that I would really find the place where I fit best. It was serendipity. And murder at Sleuthfest, I I have to say, when I made the decision to buy your collection, look at my notes here, Don't Get Mad, Get Even, 15 Tales of Revenge and More, it was that title that I'd like, all right, I have to read that story. But I'm just, I'm reading them through in order to get to it. Now, one of the... one of the stories in your collection won the McCavity Award last year, and I, I read that this morning, and that was The Lord is the Lord My Seamus. Yes, that was so funny. There should oh, have been yay. an award for the best idea for a story ever. <laughs> I've heard from some people who said that there should be a title, this award for best title ever. Um, <laughs> But it's such a clever idea. Can you just give like a brief overview of of, of that particular story? In the Lord is My Seamus opens with a man um, who you may all know as Job from the Bible getting called to um, chat with God. And God basically, you know, tells him, you know, I need you to go down back to earth for me and do a little investigating. And Job thinks, investigating? What do you need me to do any investigating for? You know everything. What in the world could I do for you? But, you know, it's God. So he says, uh-huh, okay. And God starts to explain that a man has died under circumstances that everyone Earth on Earth thinks was accidental. But God knows differently. And he wants Job to go down and investigate and prod the murderer to... Um, admit his or her sins. And so at the end of the first... Well, I don't actually want to give it away, (laughs) but that's basically (laughs) it. Well, I I will say that um, the most enjoyable part for me was Job, who of course is an ancient character from the Bible, comes down to the modern-day world, and he's been kind of paying attention to the modern-day world, but not so much. But just the the difference in what he was expecting and what he saw, it was very, very entertaining. <laughs> Thank you. It, 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 was, it was hard to try to figure out a good twist, and I realized that even if you're in the afterlife and you're checking out, you know, the world and you try to keep up, you may not understand all the nuances of how everything works in modern life. And I use that to my advantage. <laughs> you certainly did. <laughs> all right. You mentioned the title, and this title was, was just great. How important are titles in the world of a short story author? I'm going to say they're important and they're not important. Okay. So... First, they're important because a good title will stand out in a reader's mind. And if it's, frankly, if it's the end of the year and it's, you know, award-dominating season, and there are a lot of awards where readers <laughs> send in the names of your stories that they loved and saying, oh, I think this one should be nominated, oh, I think that one should be nominated. If you have a story name that stands out, they're likely to remember it more. <laughs> So, in that way, it's important. And and I think a good title is important. I mean, you, you just said yourself. I mean, you, know, you you saw The Lord is My Seamus, and you thought, oh, my God, that's a good title. I want to read that story. Mm-hmm. So, for those reasons, titles are important, because they can lure a reader in, and you want that. That said, I've had authors tell me, you know, that 
they spend so much time trying to figure out the right title of their story that they hold back and they don't submit because they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to figure oh, wow. it out. <laughs> Ultimately, if your title isn't that great but your story is, the editor will change it and they'll come up with a better oh, title. Okay, okay. So I, I wouldn't worry about it so much. I, you know, I'm in. I'm one of the three editors now of the Chesapeake Crime series. I wasn't when I first submitted to them, but I have been for the last three volumes. And we sometimes get stories, and we think this is a really boring title, and we come up with suggestions for the author. You know, you might want to change it to this. I, I read a lot of short stories. I read a lot of anthologies, and I read a lot of mystery short story anthologies. What I find myself doing is going to the table of contents, looking for authors that I that I recognize or know, reading those stories, and then going to the table of contents and looking at titles. So I, I think that's why I was asking the question. I don't know whether the way I read those anthologies is unusual or not, but uh, I, I probably don't read every story in, in every anthology, but I read the ones that look interesting. And sometimes it's, it's hard to tell whether something is going to be great or eh in, until you read it. But uh, the titles were, are sort of a key for me. Well, I know that everyone has limited time, but I would recommend um, checking out the stories that maybe don't have the most interesting titles, because sometimes you might find a gem behind a, a boring title. You know, it, it's a short story, so it might take you a long time right. to read any particular story, but you could always try the first couple pages and just say, oh, that's not so bad, and I'll keep going. Uh, let's, let's talk about rights for short stories. When you submit a short story to uh, Chesapeake Crime, the Chesapeake Crime series, do they own the rights for a certain period of time? How does that work? Every publication will work differently. A smart author will review what the rights are before you submit so you know what, what you're getting yourself into. The Chesapeake Crime series, just as a for instance, our contract says that when you submit and we accept your story, you are giving us your first um, rights to the story, and that's for print and for ebook. And what you agree to is that you won't publish that or have published that story anywhere else until our book comes out. And with us, the rights revert back to the author immediately upon publication. While we would hope that the author wouldn't turn around the day after the book comes out and self-publish a story, he could. Other places have uh, stricter rules. Um, you know, you submit a story and they accept it, and you sign the contract, and they own the story up until the story is published plus six months or plus one year. And then after that period, then the story, you could do what you want with it after that. So it varies. Um, usually one year is, is the max that I've seen, although I'm sure there are other other things out there that are longer. Does that actually play a part in whether or not you decide to accept uh, having your, your work published, or is it just something that you make note of that's like, okay, I'll have the rights back to this in a year or six months or whatever so I can do something else with it? I saw a call for stories sometime in the past year from an outfit that said that they would own the rights to your story forever. Oh. And although the rights would go back to you after, I think, a year, that, you know, whether it's 10 or 20 years in the future, if they wanted to put out a new anthology, they could just put it out without any extra money going to you. And I thought, I'm not doing that. That doesn't sound very fair to me. I noticed from your Amazon author page that 
you are in a lot of anthologies. I try. So is that something that story A, and I'll, I'll just use the, I'll, I'll use the story Bon Appetit. Is it possible that Bon Appetit could be in three of your collections or three different anthologies? Um, anything, sure, anything is possible. Bon Appetit was in the, was in the collection, I'm sorry, was in the anthology that it was in. Mm-hmm. It showed, in the original anthology it was in, it showed up in my collection that came out, I think, a year later. And if I ever wanted to sell a reprint right, I certainly could. So, yeah, it could show up in different places. If people went to my website, I have a tab that lists all of my published stories. And under each story, it shows where it appeared. So one of my stories, and I'm blanking on which one, was a reprint. And it says it under the story. You could find that story also here. And you could find the story also here. Okay. And you, since you mentioned your website, it's Barb Goffman, G-O-F-F-M-A-N dot com. And let me take a minute to compliment you on your website. It's not the most elaborate website I've ever seen, but it has everything that you need there, including this wonderful introduction of you that says, I write mystery short stories. You know, this is who I am. This is what I do. And then here's a list of the stories. And it's, uh, it's great. So many authors obscure their work with all this other stuff. And yours is just there. Well, I appreciate that. Mine is just there because I wanted an easy website that I could update myself without having to pay someone else to do it. Um, if I had unlimited money, I would probably have one of those fancy websites, but I don't. So. <laughs> well, this works just fine. Thank Spe- you. Speaking of money, um, without getting into specifics of, of what a any particular publication might pay, what would a beginning short story, let's say I decided to publish a short story, or I I decided to submit a short story, uh, what's the range that I could expect to get for a 5,000-word short story? Um, The range runs from nothing Mm -hmm. to several hundred dollars. Um. You will find, especially places that take stories... Um, wait, I'm not phrasing that quite right. There are a lot of places on the web that will publish your story, and they say that your payment is exposure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As if you, know, you can pay the mortgage with exposure. <laughs> so um, a lot of people, and, and I did it as well, you start out with places saying, you know, we'll publish your story and maybe you'll get a free copy of the book. And that's, that's all you get. But at the beginning, it's so exciting just to be a publisher. You're like, I'll take that. That sounds great. And it's, there is something to be said for exposure and getting your name out there. I have benefited from it myself. But at some point, I, I reached this point in the last two years, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a professional and I shouldn't have to give my work away for free. So now I have my own personal rule that... Unless it's a paying forum, I don't submit, except if it's for charity. Like the Chesapeake Crime Series, all the royalties go back to the Chesapeake Chapter of Sisters in Crime, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit group. So I have no problem you know, submitting to them because I, I support the cause. So the, is, is there like a life cycle for a story? Uh, say, let's go back to the first story that, that you wrote, the um, Murder at Sleuth Fest. Do I, have, mm-hmm. do I have the title right, Murder at Sleuthfest? Yes, okay. you do. Um, you wrote that some time ago. It was published. The rights reverted to you. Um, mm-hmm. Then what? 
does does it sit? Do you put it in anthologies? Do you publish it as a an individual short story? Uh, what do you personally do with your catalog of work? Well, I mean, Murder with Sleuth Fest appeared in Chesapeake Crimes too, and that anthology is still out there and available for oh, purchase. Oh, okay, all right. So it, it's there. I mean, the, the the beauty to me of going with books is that unless your publisher goes under or for whatever reason the, the book goes out of print, which in the age of e-books is unusual, um, the, the story's always out there. I I took that story two years ago or last year, whenever it was, and I put it into my collection, so it's there as well. If I wanted to put it up on Amazon, for example, as an individual short story, I could do that. I haven't done that yet, simply because it would be more effort than you know, perhaps it's worth. Okay, and that that leads to another question. Um, because you have so many, you're in so many collections. You have your own collection. Do you have any sense of the sales volume of collection versus individual short stories. Do individual short stories really sell, or are you far more likely to sell more with a collection? I would think that a collection would sell more. And I think partially it's because of the price. If you look at an individual short story, they're usually going to be priced at 50 cents or a dollar. And Frankly, I don't think that's very much to ask, mm-hmm. but you will see a lot of books these days that are priced at 99 cents for a whole book. Right. And there are readers out there that say, why would I pay 99 cents for 10 pages when I can get, you know, 500 pages for the same price? It, it, it's, it's a hard market to be in. So for, from that perspective, I think it might be easier to sell if it's one of 15 stories in a book as opposed to just an individual story out there. Now, if you're a really big-name author like Stephen King, you could put out your individual story, and it'll <laughs> right. sell like hotcakes. But if you're a the equivalent of, in the short story world, a mid-list author or a new author, and your name isn't well-known anywhere or well-known outside a small community of readers, you may not sell as many. What's the difference in your mind between a short story and a full-length novel? Really, to me, I think the big difference between a long, a novel and a short story is the incident at hand. In a short story, you're looking at a very concrete incident, and you start as far into the story as you can, before you know, while giving the reader everything they need to know, and you stop as early as you can. So, my many of my stories are all set on one day because it's all dealing with a discrete incident. And there aren't any subplots which you need to see in a novel, and there isn't room for a lot of probably description. I I heard, um, I don't know if you've heard of Toni Kellner, or you know Toni Kellner, but she said, she's another novelist who also writes very good short stories, and Mm -hmm. she said a couple years ago that, you know, with a short story is like a stool, and you need character, and you need dialogue, and you need description. But the stool can stand on just two legs. And typically, you'll just, you know, one leg might be weaker than the other, and that's okay, as long as the other two legs are nice and sturdy. Um, Let's say someone came to you at BoucherCon. You're going to BoucherCon in another uh, month or so. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, when this airs, it'll be another week or so. Um, Okay, yeah. (laughs) So so, uh, someone comes to you that's uh, published half dozen novels and they're you know a, a 
a mid-list author who's had some success, and they say, Barb, I'd really like to write some short stories. What's your advice? What, what advice would you give them? Oh, well, um, try, again, I would, I would tell them to try to come up with a discrete incident, something that, that you, you know, a, a story you want to tell. For example, in my story, Evil Little Girl, I wanted to tell a story about a girl who, she's at camp and she doesn't want to be at camp and she wants to go home, but she knows her parents won't just take her home because they don't like quitters. So she has to come up with a reason for them to take her home. So we start with the story showing how miserable she is at camp. And then we, we see her come up with her idea of how she'll get her parents to make her take her home. And then the story progresses until we reach the, the climax. You know, you're not writing the all, when you're writing a short story, you're not writing the all-American novel. I don't need to know where your character was born and where she went to elementary school or who her first boyfriend is, unless that's relevant to the very specific tale you're telling. I only want to know what's relevant to the tale. Imagine you're going out to lunch with a friend who is a big talker. Mm-hmm. And you just want to get to the meat of the story of that, what happened with her husband. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to know how she got caught in traffic coming, to, coming to, to lunch. You just want her to skip all the traffic stuff and get to the heart of the matter. That's what a short story is. You're getting to the heart of the matter right away. And how long should it be if it's something that you want to submit somewhere? There's not a specific call that you're responding to. You just want to write a short story, and then you'd like to submit it somewhere. How, how long should the story be? Oh, you know, well, let's I say very... let's say I uh, let's let's say this particular author writes mysteries, and they want to submit it to Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. If I remember correctly, Ellery Queen says that they prefer stories somewhere between a thousand words and eight thousand words. Although they occasionally take stories a little longer than that, every place will be different. I, I think that you should write the story to be the story it's supposed to be and then, you know, try to make it fit. But when I first started writing, everything I wrote was very short. My writing was very spare. Mm-hmm. And I would look at a call for stories, and I'd say, oh, they wanted this one to be a minimum 3,000 words. I'm at 1,000. Crap. Wow. You know, that's, that's hard to beef it up. But if I come out at 2,500 and they want 3,000, well, I could probably read through it and go, you know what? There's no description. I'll just add some. <laughs> write the story that it's meant to be, and then find a place where it fits. Okay. That is my best advice. Okay. So now you also, you mentioned earlier that you do uh, editing professionally, and you have a I website do. for that, which is GoffmanEditing.com. Yes. Presumably you're editing full-length novels. Yes. Um, well, I, I've done a couple short st- Well, uh, let me take a step back. Okay. For the Chesapeake Crime series, I edit stories for that series. But for my business, I've edited a couple of short stories for authors, but everything else has been novels. Do you... Um, and, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, I offer developmental editing services as well as line editing, copy editing. So, you know, some authors need help more with big picture items, and other people want you to want me to drill down into, did I spell that word right? And I, my, my services, you know, cover the range. Okay, now I have to ask this question. Since you do this professionally, do you edit your own work? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there a rule about that? Like, like doctors? Yeah, there's a rule. There's a, there's, but I, I have critique partners, and 
it's at least one of my critique partners always reads everything before I send it out. And usually two or three people read everything I write before I send it out with the hope that not only will they catch typos, but, you know, if there's a big problem, they'll point it out to me. For, for example, in the, in the story, It's a Trap, my friend Donna Andrews, she read that story before I sent it out. And she said, well, wait a minute. How in the world does this work? If the character knows this, then obviously the character knows that. And I'm like, oh, God, that was a big problem. <laughs> Much better for her to catch it before it goes out than, you know, give me a day to figure out how to fix it. Yes. And then it goes out. <laughs> All right. You mentioned the term developmental edit. There may be people who don't know what that is. Can you describe a developmental edit? Sure. A developmental edit involves reading the, the entire book and then looking at big picture issues. Um for example, we you know look at the characters. Are they are the characters well developed? Does your main character go through a story arc? Does the character grow? Is the character affected by the plot? And looking at the plot, does the plot make sense? Does it have enough suspense? You know, does it have enough peaks and valleys so that the reader isn't you know bored and isn't constantly on the edge of their seats? Um, looking at dialogue, does the dialogue sound realistic? Are the characters consistent in how they talk? Looking at point of view, are there problems in point of view? There are lots of technical matters that I look at when I read a book, and I try to point out to the authors ways that their stories can be improved. Copy editing looks at grammar, style, punctuation, and line editing will deal more with, is that the right word, or how can I tighten this so that it reads better, and, and things of that manner. I think there are a number of people who think of editing as copy editing and line editing, and not nearly enough people, people who are independent publish, publishing independently and, um, or publishing on their own, and maybe don't have the most experience in the world, the developmental edit can be so incredibly valuable, but it's something that a lot of people either don't think about or don't do because it's too expensive or don't even know they exist. They just think editing is editing. Do you have, does that seem reasonable what I'm saying or am I just way off base? No, I, I think that does seem reasonable. Well, a lot of people say when they see something and it says edited by, they think, you know, they're looking for typos. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good editor can really help you, help an author with your vision, with helping to see the story as it is and as it could be, and making your story more realistic and more exciting and more funny and more whatever it is that you want it to be, and, and just better, taking out the tangents. I, I, I often, you know, I, I tell writers that... When you're writing a story, think of yourself as, you know, you're on a train, and your goal is to get from point A to point B, and your train should always be chugging along, and you're moving forward, and you're moving forward. But don't forget that there are stops. So if, for example, you walk into a room and you see a dead body, your initial reaction should be to scream. But probably right after that, or at the exact same time, you have thoughts going through your head like, oh, God, is the murderer still here? Who did it? What's going to happen next? And a lot of times you'll see authors, 
that are so intent on getting from point A to point B that they forget to put in those internal reactions, the things that make characters real and rich. And a good developmental editor can help you figure out whatever it is that's missing from your book, whether it's reactions or description or action or dialogue or whatever, to make your book everything it could and should be. If in a full edit, let's say development, developmental edit, uh, line edit, copy edit, all the way through to proofreading, how much of the total effort goes into developmental and how much into the other buckets? Well, when I'm hired, I'm typically hired for either a developmental edit or a line edit or a copy edit, or it could be copy and line together. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't want to do developmental edit and a copy edit at the same time because a developmental edit might come back and say, you need to scrap the entire chapter two, and you know you really should beef this up, and you might want to revise this, and you might want to revise that. And if the author's going to go back and do a lot of rewriting, it doesn't make financial sense for the author to pay me to have copy edited the story that he was just going to, you know, rip apart mm-hmm. and start. I've had an author who hired me for developmental edit, and I, I mm-hmm. worked with her on that, and she did revision. And then she sent it back to me, and she said, can you please now line edit this? Okay. So it, it was, you know, a two-step process. All right. It, yes, and, and I guess that's my question. If, if you go through that entire process with a gap in between for rewriting, how much of your time goes into developmental, and then how much goes into the line edit? I try to get through a developmental edit in approximately three weeks. It could be shorter, it could be longer, depending on how long the book is. I, I did a book, this, two books this summer. One of them was about 65,000 words, and one was 55,000 words. And I got through each of them in 10 days. Typical book in the 75,000, 80,000-word range probably take me three weeks. But it really depends on the shape the book is when, is when it comes in. The more work a book needs, the longer it will take me. And what's the resulting product that the author gets back from you? For developmental edit, they will get back a memo from me that hits the that addresses the high points of my concerns and suggestions of how to fix things. My, my last two books that I wrote edit memos for they were about ten pages long. Okay. Um, and you'll also get back from me the electronic manuscript of your book. And depending on what I was hired for, you'll see some or a lot of marks in it. You might go see on page you know, five, um, this is a point of view problem, you know, you, you need to fix this here. Or, and you, then you might go to page 12 and you might see another comment. And if you're looking for a copy edit, of course you'll see changes on probably every page. What would it cost for a, how do you, how do you price a developmental edit? My prices currently run from three to six dollars per page, and that assumes the industry standard of two hundred fifty words per page. Okay. So, if you had a seventy thousand word manuscript, that would be seventy thousand divided by two fifty, and then whatever that resulting number is, you take that number and you multiply it by three dollars or four dollars or six dollars, etc. And what my price per page is depends on shape your manuscript is in and what you want me to do with it. If you send me a manuscript and you tell me, I know my dialogue is great and I know my characters are fine, I just need help with setting, just for example. Mm-hmm. I'd say, okay, well, if I'm only going to look at one particular thing, I'll probably only charge you three dollars a page. But if you come to me and your manuscript is a big old mess, I'll probably <laughs> charge you more per page. So I ask you know, all the authors that I work with to please send me 
um, the first 10 to 15 pages of their manuscript. And I will read it for free and get back to them and tell them, you know, based on what you're looking for and based on what I read, this is what I will charge you per page, assuming that the rest of the book is of the same quality as the first 15 pages. And sometimes I'll say, okay, you only wanted me to look at A, B, and C, but you really have a problem with D. You might want to consider that. And if you want me to look at D also, you know, that affects my price in this way. All right. So you are going to be at BoucherCon, and you're sitting on a panel that where you're going to talk about short stories, right? Yes, very excited. Uh, I think the panel is called Small But Mighty. Um, uh, BoucherCon runs from Thursday, I think November 13th, if I remember correctly. And the, the panel is on the very first day, Thursday at 4 p.m. Paul Marks is on the panel with you, isn't he? Yeah, Paul Marks and Art Taylor, who is a tremendous short story writer and also a good friend of mine, and um, two or three other authors, Rob Lepresti, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, <laughs> and a couple of other authors who I'm, I'm blanking on, but it should be a very good time. Um, and I'm the only woman on the panel, so I will be representing us all. <laughs> good for you. I know you can do it. What's the best way for people to follow your work, Barb? Is it your website? Yeah, my website, probably. If, if you want to, I, I update that whenever I have something new come out. You could also friend me on Facebook. But if, well, I love connecting with readers and anybody, anybody else on, on Facebook. Please send me a message along with your friend request, you know, basically saying how you know me. Because like a lot of women on Facebook, I get the stalker. <laughs> Spam emails. Oh, how nice! People who, who who just love my face and want to get to know me better, oh. and I, I I tend to disregard those. But if you tell me that you've read my work and you want to get to know me better, I say yay. Well, that's great. Are you on Twitter? Do you do any any of the other social media things, or is it mostly Facebook I, and your website? It's Facebook and my website. I have a Twitter account, but frankly, I have not been on Twitter in two years. I, I just never seem to get it. It, it's it's funny how certain people thrive on a a specific social medium platform and not so much on on the others. I've you and I have been friends on Facebook for a long time, and uh, I enjoy following what you write because it's a little bit about your stories and a lot about just what's going on in your life, and it's it's interesting. Thank you. I've, authors who only promote 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 can really turn people off. And what I like about Facebook is it really is social media. It's a chance to get to know other people on a social basis. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally, you know, share your good professional news. Thank you very much for your time and for uh, answering my questions today. I've learned a lot, and I I hope our uh, listeners have learned a little bit more about the the short story writing business. Well, I've really enjoyed this as well, and, and I hope people will you know, read my stories and read other authors' stories. And don't be afraid to let the author know if you really liked the story. If you didn't, maybe keep that to yourself. <laughs> but if you liked it, feel free to, to let them know. Writing can often be feel like you're working in a vacuum, and feedback, especially positive feedback, is, is, is just lovely. Thanks for listening to The Author Biz Podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mention, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.